Praise be to God, for indeed it is well with our soul. Friends, it is easy to think and say it is well when our soul, where things go well. It is easy to believe in the providence and hand of God when everything works well for us in life, when things are just trucking along and uh, things, things are beautiful and nothing to complain about. But when trials come, when hardship comes, when we see evil in the world, can we still sing it is well? Well, let's open Scripture to the book of Ecclesiastes as we look this morning to the sad realities of a fallen creation. Book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we'll be reading from verse 16 all the way to chapter 4 of verse 6. As you turn there, if you did not bring a Bible uh, with you, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, and you may find this passage on page number 554. This is the word of the Lord from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there, was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there, was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity." All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again I saw... All the oppression that are under all the oppressions that are under uh, the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handsful of toil and a striving after wind. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Asking God to bless the reading and the proclamation of his word. Father, we are sinners. Because of that, we have an inclination to misunderstand, to misapply your truth. 
Father, we ask now that by your Spirit you would speak to us. You would bless the proclamation of your word with good hearing. Father, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds and soften our wills to listen to you and follow you. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory and honor. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, um, if, if I were to choose a passage um, at will, what would I want to preach on? This would never be a passage I would choose to preach from. Because it's just so, so depressing at first sight. You look at this as the first time I read through this, I was wondering, what exactly am I supposed to, to take from this passage? Because there are some verses that if I were to take them just by themselves, it would feel like they're written by someone who doesn't believe in God. Who knows if there's death, what happens after death? Who knows what happens to the spirit of man after, after he dies? It feels like it's someone who's not sure what exactly is going on with life. And yet this passage is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to be in, our, in, our, in the Bible. And it's supposed to be giving us instruction. And the instruction is understood when we remember the context of what happened prior to this passage. Remember that at the beginning of chapter 3, the preacher of Ecclesiastes gave us uh, a great poem on the reality that there is a time for every matter under the sun. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, and 14 similar pairs of limits and opposites are presented to us in order to describe to us the cycle of life. Last week, we saw how this poem reflects on the, season of the, on the, on the seasons of life, actually points to the providence of God, to the sovereign hand of God. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under, under heaven, and the point is, we don't get to choose that season. We don't get to determine that cycle of life. Someone else is there to determine it for us, and that someone else is God. A similar idea comes up in our own text in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And then the same echo from the previous, from the, from the poem the same echo comes at the second part of verse 17, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. In other words, verse 17 and the passage we just read is a continuation of the things that have been said at the first half of chapter 3. But now, starting with verse 16, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is looking at the sad realities of life, the sad realities of our world. As one commentator said, can you face life in this world as it really is? Can you face life in this world as it really is? Our text will look at three sad realities that exist whether or not we see them. The realities of injustice, the realities of oppression, the realities of envy. Let's look at each of these and, and see what, how can we make sense of these and how should we live life with, with a reality of of, of, these, in, of these sad injustice, oppression, envy, and, and many more, but only three today. Let's look at these three realities, the reality of injustice. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw the sun under the sun that in the place of justice, even there, was wickedness. 
in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, none of us are surprised to hear that there is injustice in the world. That doesn't surprise us. What is surprising and what gets us mad and angry is when we see that injustice in the very place that should dictate what is justice. Right? And that's what, that's what, what the preacher is telling us. I, I saw what is done under the sun and in the place where we would expect justice to be. And most likely this refers to the courts of law, the places that administer justice and should deal justly. Most likely that's what the, the place is, the, the, the reference is here. Even there, the preacher say, sees that there's injustice. But I want to remind you, in antiquity, the highest court of appeals in any society in the ancient world uh, was not some sort of court. It was actually the king. The king had ultimate power, ultimate decision on what is right and what is wrong. And here, here the preacher says that even in the places of, of the, the highest leaders of society that determine what is right and wrong, even there I saw wickedness. How sad. But notice not only in the place of justice, he also says in the place of righteousness, where you would expect righteousness. Now, what, what would be those places? Think of the ancient world. The one place where that would be expected would be the temple, right? The spiritual leaders of, of God's people. That there, at least they would, they would promote righteousness. But what does Solomon, what does a preacher of Ecclesiastes in the, in, observe? That even where you would see righteousness or you would want to see righteousness, even there, there's wickedness. People who look at the church and they would expect righteousness. They would expect holiness. They would expect rightness. We find, even in the life of the church, we find wickedness. We find injustice, wrongdoing. Does that get you mad? Does that get you depressed? Does that get you disappointed, discouraged? It does, doesn't it? When Jesus came and addressed the spiritual leaders of his, of his age, of his day, he said to them at one point in the, in the Gospel of Luke, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. How sad that while the Pharisees kept a strong religious perception among the people, while they kept their religious um, leadership and spiritual leadership, they have fallen in the very trap that the preacher of Ecclesiastes lamented. Wickedness in the place of justice. Wickedness in the place of righteousness. Isaiah, in the Old Testament, spoke to the people about those who acquit the guilty for a bribe rather than executing justice, and those who deprive the innocent of his rights. The book of Amos speaks about that as well. And friends, these warnings, these accusations were not written for the pagans. They were not written against those who were away from or uh, apart from God. They were written 
to the very people who claim to follow God. In the place of righteousness, in the place of justice, there is wickedness. Friends, has anything changed today? Sadly, no. Yes, we may have a concept of justice. We may have an appreciation for justice to be executed consistently by the courts. Yes, we may have a concept of righteousness for the church. But reality is, it doesn't happen consistently. We may even feel the pain and the disappointment whenever we see the wickedness instead of justice. We may feel the the discouragement. And you wonder, is life worth living? If in the very places that are, going, that are supposed to set the standard for righteousness and justice, if even those places are corrupt and wicked. Friends, let me remind you that if you feel that way, if you feel this pain, realize that even the ability to feel repulsed at injustice is a God-given ability. That even the fact that we feel angry, and and upset when we see injustice and when we see wickedness instead of righteousness, even that is a God-given ability. What is the solution to the presence of wickedness? What does a a preacher, what does he he point to when he he feels overwhelmed with, with that sad reality? Well, look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. The preacher is pointing to the coming judgment of God. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. The preacher's solution to the presence of wickedness in our lives is to be reminded of God's judgment. Now, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he do something about it? Well, at this point, He's not going the path of let's do something about it ourselves. There are many passages, many texts in Scripture that speak to that part of let's do our part to work against injustice and against oppression. But here he's not doing that because he realizes there are so many things that he can't do. There's so much he cannot do about the injustice and about the oppression and about every, the, every sad reality of the world. Here he's dealing with the, the, the sad feeling of of discouragement, of disappointment, of wanting to give up life, of thinking that the dead are better than the living. He's dealing with that feeling of hopelessness that often can come in our own hearts when we see wickedness and injustice and we can't do anything about it. How often do we burn with zeal and angriness when we see wickedness, when we hear of of injustice? Now, we can do something about some situations, But there's so much of it that we cannot deal with everything. So your heart can be overwhelmed. What do you do? What do you tell your heart? The preacher says, remember, the day of judgment, the day of God's judgment is coming. And that day will make all the wrongs right. Look at Psalm 37. We have a a similar idea when when the psalmist in in Psalm 37, verse 12 says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. And we could say, Lord, why don't you do something about it? And the Lord doesn't. But you know what he does? Psalm goes on and says, 
But the Lord laughs. He laughs at the wicked. He doesn't put a stop to them yet. He laughs, for he sees that his day is coming. Yes, the Lord laughs at the wicked. Why? Because God himself knows the day of judgment will come. Yes, I may not stop the, the injustice. I may not stop the wickedness right now. Don't worry about it. Don't let your heart be troubled by that. Even though it's painful, even though it's hard, the day of judgment is coming. Friends, we live in a time when we don't like to think about the day of judgment. We don't like to think about the judgment of God. Even the church has become afraid of, of thinking and talking about that very much. And this, this, that fear is very unfortunate, that we are afraid to talk about the judgment of God. Here, the preacher finds the coming judgment of God to be a balm for his restless soul, for his soul that is inundated and overcome by the pain of so much injustice and the feeling that you can't do anything about it. And even if you try to do something, it's so small in comparison with so much injustice that happens in the world. Well, friends, let your heart be strengthened and encouraged in the face of that disappointment, anger, bitterness, chronic, chronic uh, distraughtfulness. In the sight of all of that, put your hope in the day of judgment. There's some people around us who feel so discouraged about the, the destiny of our nation. And we feel so hopeless about what's going on in, in our own country, about various things, about various directions that have taken place. Friends, remember, the day of judgment is coming. Put your hope in that day. Well, why does God delay the judgment? Why doesn't He act now? Why there is so much evil? Why there is so much injustice? And if God is truly good, and if God is truly powerful, why doesn't He act now? That was one of the questions that is often, that is one of the questions often brought up against the existence of God. In, in Brothers Kamarazov, in one of the well-known Russian novels, one of the, one of the, the uh, atheist uh, characters in the story asks the, 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 the character who is religious, if there's so much evil and there's so much injustice happening, why, and God is truly there, why doesn't he act? This question of the, the presence of evil, the presence of injustice is often brought out against God's existence. But friends, look at the way verse 18 answers this question. Why does God delay His judgment? Why does He allow a world where wickedness is so prevalent? Verse 18, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Why is God allowing wickedness and injustice to flourish? Not because He cannot put a stop to it. He can, and He will. But here's why He allows it now, for two reasons. To test mankind, and that idea of testing here really is, means revealing or showing or making clear. And the second idea, the second reason is to show them, to show mankind that they are like animals. This is why God is testing us. We think we are above animals, and we are. The Bible says we are. We have been made in the image of God. We are the crown of God's creation. But our wickedness shows us that we 
are actually no better than animals. Animals don't have a concept of good and evil, of right or wrong, of justice or injustice. By allowing wickedness to grow in the world, God is actually testing us and forcing us to see that mankind has fallen so terribly bad that we are actually no better than the animals um, that God created in the area of justice and wickedness. How sad. How sad. Actually, the comparison between humans and animals is developed further in this text. Look at verse 19. The preacher compares the end of life on earth between humans and animals. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Then in verse 20, the preacher gives another comparison. He says, all go to the same place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. The preacher looks at the final destiny of human life under the sun, and since death makes no difference between an animal and a human being, the preacher drives his comparison home for us. The destiny which a preacher has in mind is the destiny of dust. That is what life under the sun looks like. That's where it goes. And this idea of, of dust, this destiny of dust, reminds us of Genesis 3, doesn't it? Where God indeed gave the first and the first dec the declaration that indeed man, as a result of his disobedience, as a result of going against God's word, as a result of that, man shall die. And death brings him to the grave, and the grave brings him to dust. I love what Derek Kidner says on, on, this, on this verse. He says, verse 20 confronts us with a fall and with the irony that we die like cattle because we fancied ourselves as gods. We have tried to be God, and we have become like animals. In the next verse, the preacher is continuing his comparison between animals and humans. Friends, I know it's not a pleasant comparison, but he's driving this comparison home for us. Look at verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down in the earth? Now, this might sound like here's a man who doesn't believe in the existence of God. Here's a man who doesn't believe that there's life after death. Well, not really. He is speaking here as if all there is to life is what these senses of ours can see. He speaks about life as if, as if all we can see is that which is under the sun, as if there's no revelation of God, as if there's no other knowledge of what happens beyond death. If you just looked at life from this perspective of under the sun, then truly, who knows? Who knows if there's anything going on after death? Scientifically speaking, from the sensory experience we have, we may not know what happens after that. Here's a secular mind, the mind that says, let's think of life apart from God. There's no certainty of what happens after we die. But when we open our eyes and ears to hear what God says about life and death, we are told that indeed there is life. There is life after death. And there is certainty in what happens after death if we trust in the one who knows what happens after death. The one who knows beyond the sun. 
the one who indeed knows what is good and evil. Jesus told Martha after her brother Lazarus died, I am the resurrection and life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. We do know what happens after death. If we choose to, to hear the revelation of the one who looks at life above the sun, beyond this grave. Even in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah said, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Even in the Old Testament, there was this hope of life after death. But here the preacher of Ecclesiastes is walking with us on this path of seeing life under the sun, as if all there is is life under the sun. And under that perspective, truly, who knows what happens at death. The preacher reminds us that the reality of injustice, the reality of wickedness is allowed by God to show us and to remind us of our fallenness. We tried to take the place of God, but we have become like animals. We die like animals, and even in this life, we have lost our sense of good and evil, of right and wrong. And I wonder, when you see the, the injustice in the world, what do you conclude? Where does your mind go to? Does your mind doubt where is God? Or when you see the, the wickedness that happens even, even in churches, the corruption or the, the wrongness that happens even in the, among the people who are supposed to be a picture of the righteousness of God, what, what do you, where does your mind go to? Do you just say, you know, this whole thing about God is not true? Look at all the fakeness that happens in the name of God, in the name of righteousness. Look at all the evil that happens in the name of righteousness. I just give up. Oh, friend, don't do that. This, challenges, this text challenges us that when we see wickedness in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness, it's to point to our own fallenness. It's to point to our own corruption. It doesn't put any shadow of doubt on God's goodness, on His realness, on His truthfulness. It is only pointing to our own corruptedness. And that should lead us to humility. That should lead us to, to realize that we ourselves inherit the same corrupt nature that the evil people around us do. In the middle of this pessimistic view of human life as no different than the animals, look at what the preacher says in verse 22. It's as if it's as if so far, for the, for, from verse 16 to 21, we have been in a dark room, in a place of darkness, in a place of discouragement, of no hope. And verse 22, it's like someone's turning on the light. It's like someone is opening the, the windows and fresh air is coming in. Verse 22, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him. This is the third time in this book where the preacher encourages us to rejoice in our work. Yes, the preacher encourages us to rejoice even when we see, even in a world in which we see so much injustice and oppression. Not to put away and not to, not to dismiss or disregard uh, the, the evil and the oppression that is in our world. Not to be disconnected from that. But so often we can be so overwhelmed by evil and, and injustice 
that, we, that our life feel miserable, that we no longer enjoy this life. And, and somehow God says in this book, listen, even in a world where there's wickedness and injustice, I want you to have the ability to enjoy life. Don't let the discouragements, don't let the disappointment so overwhelm you that you cannot enjoy the life that God has given you. The preacher encourages us to rejoice in our work, even in the midst of wickedness and injustice. The second reality, and this one will be a little shorter than the the first one, the second reality that the preacher forces us to see and reminds us is the reality of oppression. The reality of oppression. Three times in this passage in in chapter 4, the preacher refers to this, this reality, and he speaks about the oppression. He speaks about the oppressed. He speaks about the oppressors. Now, the Old Testament is filled with commands against oppression. Oppression in, in the Old Testament refers to or involves cheating one's neighbor of something, defrauding someone else, robbing someone, accumulating good without regard for the rights of the others. Oppression. The preacher looked at the tears of the oppressed and at the power of the oppressors. And not only did he see the tears of the oppressed and the power of the oppressors, he realized another wickedness. There's no one to comfort the oppressed. No one. Or we could say, why doesn't he do something about it? Aren't we supposed to do something about it? Yes, we're supposed to do something about it. But here, the preacher forced us to see that reality is that the oppressed cannot look at their fellow human beings to find comfort and rescue from oppression. Not ultimately. Fellow human beings are not going to be able to do this. Why? Because we're all corrupt. All of us. And even when we want to do it, we'll do it halfway. Or or we're just not able to deal with all the oppression that happens all over the world. We're just not able to. So where do we look? We should look to God. He alone. He alone is able to, to bring light, and He will. He alone is able to make wrong right. And he will. So the preacher makes another comparison. This time, he, when he sees so much oppression, he sees the tears of the oppressed, the power of the oppressors, and no one able really to deal with it in a, in rightly, exhaustively, comprehensively. He comes to a, another negative comparison. He says, The dead are more fortunate than the living. In the face of wickedness and oppression and death, in the face of of all the evil, death is better than life. Now, friends, this is not not the attitude of of a suicidal person. And yet, he says, to be dead and not see the wickedness of oppression around us is better than being alive and seeing it. Friends, I wonder, do we see the wickedness of oppression to be this bad that indeed we might think that it is better to be dead than to be alive. Are our hearts overwhelmed or or taken or realized sensitive to the the wickedness of oppression? The preacher goes a step further in the comparison. He actually says the unborn are better off than those who see the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Again, such radical comparisons are aimed to awaken us to see the darkness, the terrible fallenness of creation. A world full of evil deeds, so that indeed the unborn are better off. 
love what uh, Gray Donis says on this verse. He says, The unborn have not seen that human beings, for the sake of their own profit, will ignore the tears of the oppressed. How sad. How sad. The unborn have not seen that human beings, for the sake of their own profit, will, will ignore the tears of the oppressed. And the preacher mentions the two, two forms of wickedness, injustice and oppression. But here's a third one. And the third one takes us by surprise. Envy. The third injustice, or the third oppression, the third, um, the third uh, sad reality of a fallen world. Look at verse uh, 4 in chapter 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from man's envy of his brother. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. Here he's going to the ethical places of life, where we, would, we see people working hard, working with their hands, trying to be industrious. And the preacher looks at this reality of a hard-working culture and says, even underneath that, even when we work ethically and hard and rightly, hard work alone is not necessarily a safe ground for humanity. Work, here's why. Because the preacher says, so much of our responsible behavior, of our good behavior, of our good ethic, could actually be driven by wrong motivation, by envy. What makes this third example um, of wickedness more dangerous is that we can't see it. You can't see envy. You can see injustice. You can see oppression. You can spot it easily or more easily with a naked eye. But envy, we can't see. The preacher uncovers this evil that cannot be seen with our naked eye. The reality of envy as motivating much of what we do. Envy or covetousness is, is that desire to have what the other has, or even to exceed him. And friends, that desire is nothing different, no different than the desire of the oppressors against the oppressed, of the desire of those who do injustice against those who are right. The desire is not any different. Just the means in which it shows up is different. In our culture, we have the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, right? Everybody is, uh, everybody's having it. A new, new thing comes up, of course, every, I have to have it. Look, my, everybody at work is, is getting the new thing. Why can't I have it? I'm going to work hard. I'm going to get some extra hours, put some extra shift of, of work to be able to, to do the things I like doing. Why? Because everybody else is doing it. So we, we work harder. We get more in our, in our plates in order to have more so we can supposedly live a better life. Again, Derek Kidner on this says, All too much of our hard work and high endeavor is mixed with a craving to outshine and not to be outshone. This is vanity. On the other side is a person who works hard, um, who sees it. No, I'm sorry. On the other side is a person who, who sees the, person, the others who work hard, toiling hard, struggling hard, and he says, it's all vanity. I'm, not, I'm giving up work. On the other extreme is a lazy person who doesn't work at all. They do everything they can to avoid toil, avoid the burden of working. And they just cruise for the nice and easy life. 
They try to avoid the curse of Genesis 3, that in a fallen world, all our work is going to be sweaty and hard work. So they just avoid working altogether. For such a person, the preacher has another harsh word in verse 5. His idleness eats away not only what he has, but what he is. In verse 5, we, we see the fool holds his hands and eats his own flesh. So what is the solution? The preacher goes to verse 6, and he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands of toil and a striving after wind. Think about this picture. Two hands versus one hand. Two hands full versus one hand full. If you have children, go ask them, would you rather have two hands full of candy or one handful of candy? Which one will they choose? Which one is better? Uh, you say, well, of course, they're kids and they're candy. Yeah? Well, let's go to adults. What is better? The paycheck you have now or double of that? The car you have now or the one that is just, wow, so much better than you could have? We are no different than the kids, friends. It's just that instead of candy, it's all the other stuff of life that we think it's better. And just think of our own state, the culture in Texas. Everything is bigger in Texas. And bigger is better. Friends, we live in this kind of world that, that accustoms us, conditions us to think more is better. Here's a preacher telling us, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Oh, friends, the, the preacher here is not the only one who does it. The book of Proverbs, better is a little with fear of the Lord than a great treasure and trouble without it. I'm sorry, than a great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a little with righteousness than a great revenues with injustice. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. In, in, in Luke, the Lord said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Friends, when the preacher suggests that better is one fold, one hand of quietness and twofold of stuff, that's vanity. He's going against the grain of everything our culture teaches us. I wonder, which one do you think is better this morning? Now, that's not to say that there are times in our lives when work is stressful, when work is toilsome, when we have to work hard even for the, for the one handful. That's not to say that, that somehow life is supposed to be easy. But friends, if your work is taking away your peace, and especially if your work is becoming an obstacle in, in the peace that God is able to give you, if your work is the kind of stuff that actually becomes an obstacle between you and the Creator, and you put way more focus on just on the toils of this life and try to earn it all by yourself, as opposed to living in the, in the peace 
and, and quietness that God gives even in the midst of toil and hard work, then you might be going for the two hands versus the one hand. This text confronts us with the sad realities of a fallen world, a world in which even justice is corrupted by wickedness, a, wo- a world in which oppression and the oppressed cannot look to fellow man for comfort, a world in which even our good work ethic can be corrupted by motivations of envy and self-centeredness. The divine, the divine charge against humanity is that we have fallen so hard that we live more like animals than like God's crown of creation. This divine charge stands against us because of the injustice, because of the oppression, because of the envy. Friends, there's little comfort and joy in living like the beasts that perish. And yet, that's what we choose for ourselves when we live self-centered, self-justifying, self-serving lives. When we default to injustice and oppression and wickedness and strive for self-superiority. In the movie, The Last Emperor, the young child anointed as the last emperor of China lives a life of luxury with a thousand servants at his command. One of the people asks him, what happens when you do wrong? And his answer is, when I do wrong, someone else is punished. And the boy, the emperor, the boy who's the emperor boy, um, uh, takes a, a vase, drops it, breaks and one of his servants gets punished for it. Now, friends, in Christianity, Jesus reversed that ancient pattern. When the servant erred, the king paid for it. The king was punished. The gospel is the exact opposite. Do you realize the most oppressed person, the most injustice that has been done to anyone on this planet Earth, has been done against Jesus. The one who had no evil in him suffered the greatest injustice against him. The one who had no unrighteousness suffered the curse of God against him. And he did that in order to provide us with freedom and rescue from an unjust world, from a broken and corrupt nature. It is through Christ that now we can have hope of looking to the face of an unjust, corrupt world and yet find hope. A day will come when all will be made right. But friends, until that day comes, God has provided a day when we can be made right through the one who has suffered the greatest injustice in our place. He has suffered the injustice because we deserved it, and yet he took it upon himself. Oh, friends, it is in Christ and through him that we can actually look at an unjust and corrupt world, a world overwhelmed by wickedness and still have joy and still enjoy this life and still have hope that God one day will make it all right. But until that day, he calls us to turn to him. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you've never turned to this God, if you've never turned to him and repented of your sin, of your injustice, of your wickedness, today I encourage you, turn to him. Look to him who is able one day to make all things right. Look to him who is able to make you today right with him. The unjust to be declared just before him because of Christ. Let's pray.